0: So we are in the Gospel of John again. We're going to do the second part of uh, last week, as uh, you remember. The sermon started getting getting out of hand, so I had to cut it in half. And we uh, are going to do the second part of the last part of of the of the final discourse that Jesus gives his last training sessions with his with his disciples. Last week Jesus had made this promised to them that all the mysteries of the kingdom that He'd been hiding to them in parables so far was going to be made clear to them at the coming of the Spirit in Pentecost. That what we, basically what we have now in the New Testament is uh, the fulfillment of Jesus' promise of that. He's going to clearly, plainly, boldly speak to us about the Father. And He's done that through the apostles in the New Testament. And we have that record so that we can now see with great clarity, who God is, who the Father is, what's He really like, even more so than any of the saints in the Old Testament were able to do. Even Isaiah, or even John the Baptist, which is a, just a stunning realization. Uh, and, and today, in the second half, we're going to... Jesus promises that as something yet to come, uh, and we're going to see the disciples' response to that. Uh, so let's just get into it. If you would please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word out of respect for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, so let's listen intently together to God's inerrant Word. This is, I'm going to start from verse 29 and verse 16. And so his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative language, figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answers them. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and the power of it. Lord, we thank you for how it shows us our own presumption, how it shows us things about ourselves, Lord. You don't do that so that we would be in morbid reflection or remorse, but to show us what you're doing in us through your Spirit. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. We prayed that you would show us today how you are bringing us into the deeps so that we might glorify your name and so that we might truly rest in you, Lord. So please give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I used to work at a coin shop in high school. And one of the things we did in the coin shop was we would buy scrap gold from people for cash. And so you can imagine people would bring in just about anything and everything that they thought might have the slimmest chance of being gold to sell for cash. Old jewelry, pretty good bet. Scraps of metal, uh, coins, dentures, grandpa's old tooth that they found in a drawer somewhere. Uh, They would come in, they would bring the stuff in, all kinds of things in the hopes of finding out that the gold was genuine and therefore that they were going to get paid, that they would have some reward for it. And so everyone came in with this belief that whatever it was, that they'd put grandpa's tooth on the countertop and they would have this belief that it was genuine. They'd have this somewhat nervous expectation that was real. But until we put that gold to the test, they weren't... They didn't know. They weren't absolutely sure. And so not being sure of the value of it, had they been caught in a bad situation, they maybe might have been tempted to sell it or let it go or trade it in for something much less valuable. Not knowing what it was really worth. But after we tested that gold, after we took it and we scraped it across coarse stones, after we bathed it in various strengths of acid, after we put it through these various trials, then it would show itself as genuine and the nervous expectation would disappear into a a joyous, calm and certainty. Uh, They knew then, they knew it was real. They knew how valuable it was. They knew it belonged to them. And they would be much less susceptible to trade it in for something of no value. Because they knew what it was, they knew what it was worth. It was real, it's genuine. And that's what, that's what trial does. Trial is a good thing. Trial is something that tests something, that stress tests something, and shows it to be genuine. That's the purpose of a trial. It tests and approves us to use apostolic speak or christianese language the way paul would say it tested and approved the genuineness of something so though even though that might be an unpleasant thing to be scraped across the coarse stones of hardship and scarcity of despair even though it might be an unpleasant thing to be bathed in the acid of broken relationships of sin and temptation of failure of all the stress of this life, even though that can be and is an unpleasant thing, it has a way of revealing to us what it is we really believe, what it is and who it is that we are really trusting in. And so, in this passage, Jesus is preparing his disciples, including us, to know that their emerging intellectual faith that they are coming to grips with with Jesus is a good thing, but it's not the goal. He's letting them know, He's preparing them for the fact that He is going to lead them into what the Puritans used to call an experiential faith. One that's been tested and tried and approved by the world. Uh, One that has gone through the ringer and one that has proven itself to be genuine. All through the Bible, it talks about, over and over again, about that our faith, having been tested and approved as, and tried through trial and, temp, and tribulation, as genuine is the most precious thing in the whole world, more precious than if you owned all the gold in every basement of every Swiss bank. All the gold everywhere It is more precious than that because all of that gold, one day, someday, soon is going to melt with fervent heat with all the elements as the old world passes away. But our faith, our faith is our ticket. It is our guaranteed passage into the new world. And so knowing that it's genuine, knowing that it's true is the most important thing in the whole world. So here's the big idea, the the thesis statement. The one thing that what Jesus is trying to teach us through this passage is this is that God leads us out of a shallow faith and into a deep faith through trial so that we might truly rest in our salvation. One more time. God leads us out of the shallow faith and into deep faith through trial so that we might truly rest in our salvation. Let's take that one piece at a time. Look at verse... Or God leads us out of a shallow faith. Look at verse twenty-nine, thirty. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not in, using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. And this is why we believe that you came from God. So what are they, What are they, uh, disciples, what are they talking about here? They're responding to what Jesus had said earlier in verse 25 when he said, what we read last week, he said, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And so the question everybody asks is, what is it that Jesus has just said in the intervening four or five verses that has... Um, what has he said that is plain? That's clear. That's not really figurative in the sense that he said above. And the, the answer: people try to make you know try to make it work. Maybe you know talking about coming to the fa- from the Father to Earth, out of Earth, back to the Father. Or some people try to grab at straws about I mean, what is it that the disciples have just heard that make them think yes, this is happening now? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> the answer is nothing. Jesus has even said. He said, this isn't happening now. He said, it's in the coming. Coming soon, I'll be telling you, but I'm not telling you about that now. In other words, they're, um, they're being like those annoying kids in class that want to impress the teacher by pretending that they know more than they really do. And everybody in the class knows it. So when we read it, the story, we don't need to bend our minds around what is it that we're missing. <laughs> we need to realize that the, the apostles... <laughs> are sometimes uh, not on it and and haven't been throughout the whole gospel. And so they are just being show-offs right here. They don't really, they kind of get it. They're kind of grasping some things that he said, but they are not getting the fullness of what Jesus is trying to tell them. They do know something, though. It's not like they know nothing. In Hebrew thought, the ability to know the unspoken question as well as have the answer was a sign of deity. In other words, if you, someone, were in, think of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar comes and says, I want you to tell me the interpretation of my dream. And not only that, I want you to tell me what the dream was. In other words, if someone was able to know the, the question and the answer without being told, that was an obvious sign of divinity or di- of, 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 of divinity. And so the apostles are saying, hey, you have several times known what we were thinking and answered the questions in our minds, which is something he had just done a few verses ago. Uh, and he's saying, because of that, we now have come to, we, we're, we're basing on that, our understanding that, that you have come from God. We don't need to ask you any more questions. You are now proving yourself to be legit. We don't need to ask any more questions. So they do have some sense of who Jesus is. They're, they are growing. In other words, they have... A shallow intellectual faith in Jesus, which is a very good start, but they also have this certain sense of bravado and pride about it. We got it. We got this. They believe and they are thinking, just like Peter thought a few chapters ago, that he, that they had a hold on Jesus, And so when Jesus answers their question, there's a little bit of doubt in his answer. You know, the joke, the joke used to be the joke used to be this. used to be, "What what are the most famous redneck last words?" And the answer is, "Watch this." right Now the, now the joke is transformed. now it's "Hold my beer," right Which is the joke about the funny thing about "Hold my beer" is, is that someone has just had this insight of brilliance, and then they go out to test it in the real world, and they're utterly overwhelmed and crushed by circumstances because what they thought wasn't quite enough for what they came into contact with. And so they were overwhelmed by it. So the, the disciples really are here in the, in the middle of the Lord's Supper, the end of the Lord's Supper, having a hold my beer moment, thinking... Uh, Really, they're about to go into. Uh, they're about to, like they say, go into a knife fight or go into a gunfight with a knife. They're about to go into a, a, a satanic gunfight, and they have no idea what they're heading into. And Jesus is going to correct them by explaining to them that there's there's more to it. There's nothing wrong with intellectual faith. Paul calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We learn in our minds first, and that is how it transfers to our heart. Uh, Learning and meditating on God's Word is great. It's a great start, but it's not the goal. It's not the whole picture of the Christian life, of Christian faith. It's not everything, and sometimes we especially are tempted to treat it as if it is everything. We are more susceptible than most to think or to equate theological knowledge with Christian maturity. Well, the thing about intellectual faith is that it's always tempted to think that it, it, or that we through it, have a firm hold on Jesus. And until we get put into a situation that is beyond our control, that we are overwhelmed by, we won't ever learn the reality, which is that Jesus has a hold on us. And so point one, God leads us out of a shallow faith into point two and into a deep faith through trial, into a deep faith through trial. Look at verse 31. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone. The Father is with me. There was a, we had a graduation yesterday at Westminster Seminary. Praise God. Charlie, Vanessa, Antonio, our own people graduated yesterday with master's degrees from Westminster Seminary. And there is, there is something that every seminarian knows. Every seminarian passes first semester knows the mercy of God in a very special way and that is that there comes every every semester let me put it this I'll speak about myself every semester that I was in seminary uh, there was a point I, you know throughout the coursework when I would think I got this but there would come a day usually in the middle of finals week or in the middle of papers week right before finals week where I, it would be 3 a.m. I would be at the end of myself, I would be at the end of all my bravado, hold my beer, I got this, and would be literally face down pleading with God to save me. That I wouldn't, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't be able to pull off the amount of work that I had left. It was overwhelming. Overwhelming. Uh, And what I've You know, what I realized through that after the, you know, the first, first time it happened, the second time it happened, I was like, wow, this is, God is using this on purpose to bring me to the end of myself in con, in conjunction with all of this theological learning that God is, is giving me an experiential faith to realize that I can't do this on my own, that this is going to wreck me, that I absolutely must lean hard into God in order to do this every semester and, and i would pray 3am hit the deck nervous breakdown can't do it i quit i'm never going back please god help me and then i would get up and somehow semester after semester he would come through and i would get through it over and over again he was faithful like that teaching me how desperately i needed to have god get me through i tried to get in i, t- I actually tried to get into seminary early on something called special status, because I was bored with my undergrad work. You could apply if you had a certain amount of ministry experience, and and they turned me down. They said no. I was like offended, of course. I was like, what do you mean no? I'm older. I've had ministry experience, and they wrote me back a letter saying, we think you should stay and persevere through your studies, because in the midst of that, you're going to learn things that are going to help you in the pressures of ministry and they were right they were wise they were wise in doing that I could even do more I'm, i think it'd be a good idea maybe suggest a class or an, a uh, elective where we just put the seminarians in the room and beat them with sticks and call them names and that's it for the whole semester <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding kidding i'm kidding just church planners, maybe. Um, point, what's my point? The point is, through that trial and hardship, I learned things that I would have never learned out of a book. And God purposely instilled that into that educational process to teach me those things. Uh, and so Jesus is, in a big way, saying the same things to his disciples here over the course of this final discourse over the course of this last talk that he's having with him, it's his last pre-resurrection training session. He's telling them that they're going to face all of these overwhelming trouble, all these overwhelming challenges are going to hit them that they will not be able to handle. And he's saying it in no uncertain terms. He's leaving them. They're going to be alone. They're going to in each their own way, are going to betray him. Satan and all the powers of hell are coming against them. That the world itself, their own communities, their own families, are going to turn against them and throw them out. That people are going to come seeking to kill them with religious fervor, thinking they're doing God a favor and doing it. The whole world is going to turn against them as heretics, as enemies, uh, as, as evil people. And that they are going to scatter and leave him alone. You know, but but in and through all of this, Jesus is teaching them important things. He's going to lead by example. First of all, I mean, before anything happens to those guys, he's headed for the cross. he's going to lead them by example and he's going to teach them about the reality of their salvation that we are not saved because of our hold on Jesus but that we are saved because of Jesus' hold on us. And so when Jesus goes to the cross knowing that he's going to be abandoned he says that he knows no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter what, he is not alone that God is with him. Imagine how important that would be for those people to know a decade later, for us to know, even in our generation, to know for a fact that God is with us. Jesus had a more consummate experiential faith. He had been with the Father in glory before the beginning of the earth. He came to earth and was speaking of what he had seen. He knew God. And so he knew in that, that no matter what happened to him on earth no matter what he lost no matter what happened that to be to have god with him was the most important thing it was the only thing that really mattered it was more weighty more substantial more beautiful more protective better than anything else and he knew for a fact that he would never lose that god would be with him even when it looked like he was absolutely alone man, that's important for us to know too. I mean, there's a lot of sad things that happen in life. I mean, we might not lose everything. We might not be marched out of our house and beheaded in front of our kids for our faith, but still, life is hard and people struggle. And you might be tempted to feel like that you are in it all alone, that God has forgotten about you. But no matter what it is, if you're struggling through a relationship that broke up, with the job that you wanted didn't play out, if you've been overrun by sin and temptation again, and you're just frustrated, this is telling us that even in those things, that the most important thing is still there, that God is with us. And the other thing that God, that Jesus wants us to know through this, that as he's leading by example, he also wants to know that the reason that we are safe, the reason is because he has traded places with us. There's two Old Testament passages that are being implied in this statement about the disciples being scattered and Jesus being alone. The first one is more famous in Ezekiel 34 which is talking against the shepherds of Israel who would abandon the sheep. The sheep uh, being declared by God as being all alone without a shepherd being literally abandoned. And also it's implying Zechariah 13.7, which talks about the shepherd being struck and all the sheep being scattered. And so when Jesus says to his disciples that, that they will be scattered and he will be alone, he's saying that he at the cross is trading places with us, that while we were sheep, that we were scattered, while we were alone, the shepherd is coming and taking our place and being forsaken by his people being alone so that we might have fellowship with God. This reminded me, as I was reading it today, it came to me, it just reminded me of, of the covenant being made with Abraham in Genesis 15, where Jesus is saying, I'm going to be alone while you are scattered, and this is gonna, you know, really... I'm going to be alone and undergo this myself. And in Genesis 15, the covenant made with Abraham. What happens? Abraham does the traditional covenant set up. He cuts animals in half and he gets, you know, sets everything up. In the, old, in the old world, they would cut animals in half, lay them out, and both parties would walk through the animals and they would say, if I break this covenant, let it happen to me what's happened to these animals. In other words, they put a curse on themselves. And then what happens? God puts Abraham to sleep and he alone, God alone goes through these pieces basically saying uh, through this that he is promising, God alone promises to take on the penalties that we deserve for breaking his law. And when we get here to John 16, Jesus saying, I alone am going to go through with this. It's really him saying, This is the fulfillment of what I promised a long time ago. This is going to happen later tonight. That the shepherd has traded places with us so that the penalty of the law might be off of us and off of our shoulders so that we might be able to be at peace with God. So, all this is saying through these hardships Jesus puts us through what Jesus has went through himself and so beautifully shown through his word overall is teaching us that Jesus has a hold on us and he's not letting go he's not going to let go so point one God leads us out of a shallow faith point two into a deep faith through trial. And point three, so that we might truly rest in our salvation. Look at verse 33, the last verse. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what's the point of all this? I mean, it's a it's it's a blessing for preachers when at the end of it Jesus says, gives us the the gives us the reason. He says, "I have said these things to you because this." Now we know what the big idea is, right? We don't have to dig it out. And he says, point blank, clearly, right here at the end, he said that all he's told his disciples and us all these things. Basically, everything that he said from John 14 through here to the end of John 16, all these things he's told them about their fellowship with the Father, about their union with God through him, about them being nourished by the vine, about how uh, the trials that they would go through, all of these things he's told them so that in him you would have peace. In him. We would have peace, and remember peace it's not more it 's much more than our english peace it 's not just the cessation of hostilities it 's just not the end of the fight it 's the Hebrew concept of shalom, a great, the great peace, which means remember this is our definition a few weeks ago in the bible shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which the natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its Creator and Savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom He delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. It's the idea of total fulfillment of all hopes and dreams, of real satisfaction in life. It's, it's, it's the salvation of God. This beautiful, rounded, well-versed picture of the beauty of the salvation of Christ. And Jesus is saying, the reason he's told us all these things is so that we would have this kind of peace, this kind of wholeness in, in him. And so how does, how does this work? What has he said that's told us? What has he said that's going to help us have this kind of peace? And over the course of his, this final training session, 14 to 16, with his disciples, he said at least three things. That first, he's saying, look to Jesus, don't look to the world. Look to Jesus, don't look to the world. Notice there's, in that last sentence, Subtly, there's two ins that he contrasts. There's in me and there's in the world. He's saying in me equals peace, shalom, fulfillment, satisfaction, blessing, uh, beauty, delight. In the world, tribulation, trial, suffering, pain. The first thing he wants us to know is to not get those two confused. But we so often do. What a blessing it would be, what a blessing it is to realize as God's spirit works in us, uh, to not confuse us and not think that I'm going to get shalom and peace and blessing out of the world even though I keep going back to it, I keep trying it over and over again, I experientially know that I'm not going to get peace from the world. Do you? Do you know that? You still try? Yeah. Man. What is wrong? Oh, I find in my members a lot work. What I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. Who will save me from this body of death? This body of death. I thank the Lord. I thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the only solution to that. He's telling us right here, it's not in the world that we're going to find all those things we're looking for. It's only in Christ, in Christ, in union with him, in fellowship with him, in accordance with his word. Praying for the kinds of things that that, that he would pray for. Seeking the things that are above. Seeking those things that we know are pleasing to God. That is where we find life and peace. In worship. In sacrificial love. Which as a side effect has joy. So don't get it confused. The second thing he's telling us is they are concurrent realities in this world. Right? He's not saying, in me, you'll have peace and you don't have to worry about that tribulation in the world anymore. I wish he was saying that. Man, I wish... Well, I do. On one hand, I wish he was saying that, but on the other hand, I realize, I understand what he's saying through all this, is that that tribulation in the world is the trial that proves our faith genuine it also weans us of seeking fulfillment in things that cannot satisfy, and helping us to continually turn to Jesus and receive and seek our satisfaction in him and him alone. But it also means that it also means that the peace that he gives us even now is greater than the tribulation of the world. Sometimes I think one, one temptation is to think. This says all, he says, in the world you have tribulation, let's just settle in and suffer. Everything sucks and it's going to suck until the end, so let's just, just be pessimists and be bitter and angry at everybody because we're in the world full of tribulation. That's not what he's talking about. That's, yes, we're going to have tribulation in the world, but that doesn't have to define us as people. Yes, it will affect us as people, but it doesn't define us. What defines us is who we are in Jesus. And that although we will suffer from that tribulation in the world, on top of that is a peace, a wholeness, a completeness, a satisfaction that we can even now experience. Uh, Second thing, he's prepared them for this experiential faith, that all of these things that happen to us, the tribulation in the world, um, are teaching us That as we go through them, and as our faith holds, we can know it's genuine. And because of that, we can rejoice. We can know that what we have in our faith is more precious than all, all the wealth in the world. So when these things happen to us, when the tribulation happens, when trial happens, when bad things happen, when the breakup happens, when the heartache comes when the disappointment, when the failure, when the attack comes, we can know that it's not in vain. These things, the sufferings that we go through are also God's mercy bringing us out of the shallow faith and into the fullness of faith. And the third thing, most important thing, he says is this. What, I mean, at the end here, Jesus says, take heart which means have courage. He's like, in the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. In other words, be courageous. And what reason does he give us for being able to be courageous in the face of the trial and tribulation of the world? What is it that's so special about Jesus that makes it so important to be in union with him that makes us not believe that he's able to f- come through with everything that he said? And the answer is, it's it's almost buried in the English. He says, I have overcome the world. Overcome. The word is Nike. Like the shoe, right? Nike? Is it Nike? Nike. Like the shoe. We say Nike. There's a a Christian blogger that has a campaign against Nike, the evil of Nike, because it's a pagan goddess, which is true. Nike is... Nike okay, is a pagan goddess, but it really, it's a, it's a word that means victory, conqueror. The Latin translation is victoria. It's my daughter's name is Victoria. We named her Victoria Grace, meaning the victory of grace, which was a very common thing in the early church, for people to take that name and name their children that, knowing about the grace and that Jesus was, hadn't just overcome the world, but that he was the conqueror of the world. Doesn't that sound better? I mean, it's almost, it's too, the language is almost too strong for his culture. We were like, ah, conquer. That's bad. Uh, And yes, conquer, in, in a sense, in our earthly realm. But to think about Jesus as conqueror over the forces of evil and darkness, the victor, the military victor who has subdued all of the powers of hell. And darkness and evil and secured his perfect reign and kingdom in the world that will never ever end. That is a stronger word brings to mind the reality of who he is. He didn't just overcome the world, he conquered it and subdued it. And it is now completely under his authority. Now, here's the best part. John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote this in his first epistle, chapter 5. He says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Conquers. Same word. Victor. Is victorious. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Is the content of our faith. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And here's the thing. Paul, I mean, Paul says the same thing in Romans 8. No, and all these things are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord in other words nothing there's no category big small wide skinny nothing no category of thing that has the power to separate you from the love of Christ why how is our faith how is our faith conquer the world what this doesn't say, it's not saying, for those of you who are interpreting this as, if I have enough faith, then I'll conquer the world. If I have enough faith, then maybe I'll be a conqueror, so I need to really work on having some more faith. That's not what it says. This is talking about experiential faith. It's talking about the kind of faith that gets hit and sticks. It's the kind of faith that has proven itself to be genuine because it didn't cut and run and blame God. It stuck and said, though you slay me, still I will worship you. If you have that kind of faith, that kind of faith, then you know it's genuine. You know it's worth more than all the riches of the world. And what this is saying is, not if you have enough faith, you'll be a conqueror, but if you have that faith, that's evidence that you are victorious. You do belong to Jesus and you have overcome the world. That's us. And so concluding all this, have you been overwhelmed in life? Do you still believe? If you do, rejoice. Jump up and down and shout for joy, literally. Because it means that your faith is not about you holding on to Jesus, but about Jesus holding on to you. And if that's true, you know he will never let you go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the beauty of it. We thank You for the strength of Your hand, God, because our hands are weak. Lord, if I was required to hold on to You, I would sell You out for a trinket, and I've done it. But You restore me. You restore us. And You continually wash us over with Your love and Your grace. You continually to us that we belong to you because you have chosen us and that that will never change. And So we thank you, Lord. You are a good and wonderful Father to us. We thank you that you are the conqueror of the world. We thank you that there is a new world coming and we have been promised a place in it. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us to rejoice in this and to rejoice in you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.